You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, I want to be a good steward of, of y'all's time, and if I, if I don't know you, uh, my name is Aaron Ivey, um, and uh, I'm a worship pastor at a church in Austin, Texas, called the Austin Stone. Um, this is Kyle. Kyle uh, is also on staff at the Austin Stone, and we play music together uh, week to week, and Kyle also manages like um, records and music and studio and all that kind of stuff, and has just been a, a really good friend of mine for, uh, I guess, five or six years now. Um, so it's, it's a privilege to, uh, to be uh, in the room alongside you guys today. And um, uh, as I'm, you know, kind of thinking about what to say to you guys, um, I'm filled with an incredible amount of humility in saying any of this stuff because I feel like we're probably all in the same uh, boat when I say this. It's, it's a constant reevaluation of what we're doing and how we're failing at leading people and how to, uh, to keep kind of pushing forward in, in leading and serving the body better. And so all of this stuff today comes from a, a deep place of humility. Um, and these are some things that I've learned, but these are a lot of things still that are really hard for us to implement at the Austin Stone. So I hope it's helpful. The last thing I'd want to do is waste your time because you guys are important people that have a lot of things that, that you are responsible for. You have family, you've got churches, you've got people you're pouring your life into. So I want to be a really good steward of your time. So we're just going to jump in and I'm going to cut a lot of the, the kind of uh, fat out of here of, of trying to motivate you to actually lead people because you don't have to be motivated to lead people. That's, that's why you're actually here. So I just want to give you just really straightforward um, some kind of honesty in areas that we're struggling in the Austin Stone and then some areas that God's really kind of given us some some clarity and direction and vision on. So that's where we're heading. I don't, uh, Eric, do you know how long this thing lasts? Uh, an hour. An hour, okay. Yeah. All right, and then I'd love to uh, just at the end um, make any space for, for questions that, that you might have um, before you head out, okay? So that's the plan. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in together, okay? God, I want to thank you today uh, just for your grace and your kindness in in letting us do the great work of, of ministry. I thank you that you handpicked every single one of us um, for a purpose that's greater than our own. Um, your purpose, God, is, is so much more beautiful than anything that we could create or imagine. So I just want to tell you that I'm just humbled and honored to, to be a part, of, um, a part of ministry, God. Thank you for that. And I thank you for these men and women in this room that have surrendered and humbled themselves to a, to a posture of ministry also. And I pray that in the next few minutes, God, that you would just teach us, train us how to lead the flock that you've entrusted us with. Um, teach us, train us to do that in the way that you would do it, Jesus. Uh, we need your wisdom. We don't want earthly wisdom. We don't want wisdom on just how to be a, a stronger leader. God, we, we need um, heavenly wisdom. We need wisdom that is saturated in the kingdom of God. And so ask that you would impart that to us today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. What's up, man? Um, so uh, I'm going to just give you a, a little bit of context from, 
from where, where all this is coming from for, for me. Um, I don't know how much you guys know about Austin, Texas, or where you're from, and it's, uh, you know, it's always weird, just a group of strangers getting together and uh, fleshing out like, stuff that we're all struggling with in ministry and looking for direction, and your context is way different than my context, and that door doesn't work at all. <laughs> That is amazing. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> Welcome. Glad you made it. <laughs> Okay, so I know your context is way different than mine. Uh, some of you guys are in bigger cities than mine or smaller cities. Some of you have a team of, um, of two people that you're shepherding. Some of you might have a team of, of three or four hundred people that you're, that you're shepherding. Everybody in this room has a different context that they are leading, and, and I realize that. And so these are principles. These are, um, these are things from the Word of God that I've learned over the last 15 years of, of leading worship and leading teams. Um, and so these aren't like just my kind of creative ideas. These are things that, that have come from the Word of God and, uh, and things that we're, we're trying really hard to implement into, into our team. Um, the Austin Stone is a church in, uh, in downtown Austin. We have, we have four campuses across the city of Austin. Uh, I've been the worship pastor there uh, for seven years now. Um, I have a, a team of, of worship leaders that are staff worship leaders and then several volunteers that volunteer for leading worship for students, kids, and adult services all across all four of those campuses. So I have a really talented, incredible team of people right now uh, on our staff. It hasn't always been that way. When I got there seven years ago, uh, it was just me and one other guy, and we didn't have a staff, we didn't have a team, um, we, we didn't have the resources, the church wasn't the size that it was, it was a church plant 11 years ago, and so, you know, things have grown and things have developed into what they are now, and it took a lot of, a lot of um, really talented and creative and energetic, passionate people coming on board and, and helping build this, uh, this team of creative people, so... Uh, the things that I'm talking about today, it hasn't always been this way at our church. It's something that's been fostered and kind of developed over almost a decade of time. Um, so the, the people that I lead the most closely are my band of guys. I have five people uh, in my band of guys that, that I um, shepherd and lead. And then I have eight worship leaders that I shepherd and lead and pastor. And then across all the campuses, the volunteers that are serving in all of those corporate worship sort of settings. Okay, so that's the context that I'm coming from. I desperately want to be a pastor and a shepherd that is, um, that is in line with the Word of God and is also loving people and serving people really well. I think all of us have had shepherds or leaders in our life that, um, that maybe knew the Word of God but didn't love well or maybe loved well and didn't uh, come from an, an outpouring of the Word taking root in them. Um, we've all been failed by pastors, and, and constantly I'm failing the people that I'm leading. Um, so there is grace in knowing that God picked you to lead the people that you're leading, and He's going to empower you and equip you to do it. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here constantly learning and growing, okay? So um, I, I want to just jump in. If you guys would, if you got a Bible or something on your 
iPad or iPhone, you can look up. Turn to John 10. John 10. This is a, a passage of Scripture that you have, you have read before, you are familiar with. This is not a new section of Scripture that I found in like a cave somewhere that's going to blow your mind. Okay, this is like... This is, the, this is the word that you have heard before and you are very familiar with. And I want to kind of shape the next like 45 minutes of conversation in here today around the biblical view of what it means to lead people. You know, in our culture, we use words like mentor or leader or boss, supervisor. Um, those are kind of the words, the lingo that we use. But in the New Testament, Jesus shaped the idea of leading people, pastoring people, um, in a word that made a lot more sense in their culture than it does in our culture. And this is how he shapes it. Um, in uh, John 10, starting in verse 11, he's talking to a group of people here, and um, he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not a, far, a part of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have, no, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I have received from my Father. Okay, now if Jesus came into the room today and started talking about shepherds and sheep, that really wouldn't resonate with us like it did to these men and women that he was talking to in this passage. When Jesus steps up and he says, this is what it looks like to actually be a leader to people. This is what it looks like to be a pastor. And then he uses the the illustration of something very common, something that every single person in this village, in this context, would have understood. He says, what I am is I am the better version of a shepherd in this village. So think about what it means to be a shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the best version of that. I am the good shepherd. When I lead people, I lay down my life for them. I go after them. I sacrifice. I lay down authority. I give away. I'm constantly going after the sheepfold. That's how Jesus sets up the role of serving people and pastoring people and leading people. All right? We have heard this passage a thousand times before, right? And we know that Jesus is the good shepherd because that's kind of been ingrained in us. So I think that we kind of get that, um, but it's a little bit harder for us to resonate with the imagery of that because it's such an ancient sort of picture of, of a protector and a guardian and a leader and someone that loved the people that he was entrusted with, loved the sheep that he was entrusted with, right? Um, the, the way Jesus defines his role here was totally, um, you know, is dumbfounding to me that Jesus would do this for me and for you. A couple of things like that come out in this passage is Jesus, as the role of the shepherd, he lays down his life for a she- for sheep. He knows his sheep. His sheep know him personally. 
um, Jesus as the good shepherd. He brings the sheep to himself. He pursues them. He chases after them. And Jesus, he uses his voice. The scripture says he speaks with a voice. He calls out to them. And that's a very personal interaction that Jesus has with his sheep. Um, it's crazy to think that, you know, that he would do that for me and for you. But what's even more dumbfounding for me is that Jesus, he actually like demonstrates this very thing that he's, he's talking about. You know, just a few chapters later in the book of John, Jesus actually does all these things. I mean, Jesus pursues the cross, right? Jesus chases after the cross. Jesus chooses to lay down all of his authority. Jesus chooses to take on his sheep by purchasing them with his own blood. The Father God, right, is able to actually claim men and women, his own sons and daughters, because Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for them. And then Jesus is, is strong. Jesus is a warrior. So Jesus is stronger than death and sin. And he defeats the grave. He raises again and he ascends into heaven. Like Jesus actually did all the stuff that he said, I'm the good shepherd, and this is what being a good shepherd actually looks like, right? Flip over to John 20. John 20, sorry, John 21. This is right after the resurrection, okay? Jesus proves to all of humanity, right, that he actually is the good shepherd. And then in John 21, what's even more dumbfounding than Jesus saying, Aaron, I am the good shepherd to you, What blows my mind even more is what Jesus does in John chapter 21. Okay, John tells this story of how Jesus has this incredible, beautiful collision, right, with a simple man on a beach, and Jesus cooks breakfast for him. The good shepherd, the guy who just like defeated the grave and rose again and ascended into heaven, is now sitting on a beach with a simple, common man making breakfast for him and speaking truth and wisdom into his life. And this is what he says to him. Of all things, right, that Jesus could have said to Peter, this is what he says to him. John 21, starting verse 15. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him again, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, right, as if two aren't enough, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Okay, this is what's dumbfounding to me. Right? This is where all of our leadership hinges on. What's dumbfounding to me is that Jesus, the good shepherd, lays out and illustrates perfectly what it looks like to actually shepherd and lead people. He shows like how much sacrifice, how much time and energy and effort, how, how much of, of giving and pouring out of himself it actually takes to do that. And then Jesus, when he ascends and comes back and hangs out with a simple man eating breakfast on the beach, the task he gives him, the assignment he gives him, and he says, I am the good shepherd, essentially, and now my calling on your life is to go be a shepherd. Your calling is to do the same exact thing that I have done. Go feed my sheep. And for you guys, for every single one of us in this room, 
the calling of ministry, of leading a team of shepherds, shepherding shepherds, right, is to actually demonstrate the very character and the heart of Jesus in the most profound way possible, right? That's a daunting task, but it should humble you greatly to know that Jesus, just like he pulled up Simon Peter on the beach to cook breakfast for him, Jesus pursued you, he chased you down, all right, because of his kindness and his grace, he saw fit to look at you and say, I'm the good shepherd, now you go be a good shepherd also. You go feed the lambs, you go feed the sheep of God, okay? So all of this is on this bedrock, this foundation, that to lead a team of worship leaders, to lead a team of musicians and volunteers, the bedrock of that is that you are supposed to embody the very character and heart and purpose that Jesus had when he was the good shepherd walking around in humanity. Does that make sense? It's daunting, right? I mean, that that blows my mind that Jesus would, would do that. I want you to kind of just see, these are not like passages that are gonna, again, be a surprise to you, but I want you to see how the New Testament frames this job that you and I have, okay? These are four things that are just littered all throughout the New Testament, crucial things that a shepherd actually does in the life of his people or her people, okay? First one is this, Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11 says this. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just read it. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge and the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Your first purpose that's all throughout the New Testament is to equip your flock. Okay, your purpose in shepherding a team of worship leaders, right, that care about the culture and the heart of your church is to actually equip them right, to give them the tools necessary to present them into mature manhood or womanhood, like the scripture says, to present them as that, like that is your role, like that's under your watch to help equip them to be godly and to be true and to be in love with Jesus and his bride. Your role is to equip them, okay? The shepherd equips the flock to build it up, to keep it from being tossed by the storm and waves of life, to equip the flock to endure until glory. Okay, here's where this one breaks down for us really easily. Most of us have revolving doors of people that are underneath our our kind of care and protection, right? Um, in, In the city of Austin, the average person lives in the city of Austin for three years. It's a very transitional city, right? The University of Texas is there, so most people... Um, come to uh, get an education, and then they're looking for the, the next job, and then, and then they're gone. Average family is there in Austin for three years. So as I'm thinking about equipping them, and if my role is to endure them until glory, I realize that I only have a snapshot in their life that I get to equip them for the rest of their life. And hopefully, by God's grace, there's going to be several more men and women in their life that have the same heart and the same affection for doing this in their life. But your role is to equip them as best as you can with as much passion and fervor as you possibly can for whatever amount of time God has given them to you. Okay? That's the first one, to equip the flock. The second one is this. 
It's found in Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 28. It says this. This is the charge. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit, hear this, has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. The second thing, second crucial role for you is to guard the flock, to guard the flock. Okay, in the city of Austin, our context, Austin is in every way, whether it's culture, art, um, thinking, theology, politics, whatever, Austin is a very liberal thinking city, right? So what comes with a lot of free thought and a lot of like free speech and comes with a lot of like diversity in all areas is there are a lot of twisted ideas and twisted things that come constantly into our people's hearts, right? Constantly. I mean, it's like over and over and over and over again. And as their shepherd, I really only get to see my team of people. Some of them I see every week. Most of them I only see once a month, right? If I'm really like doing the, the team stuff that we're going to talk about in a second. Only once a month do I get to really speak into their life in this sort of way. But one of my roles is to guard them to keep them, to protect them, to, uh, like the scripture says, to, to go to war against what is fiercely after their hearts and their souls. Even on a given Sunday morning, you know, if you think about the macro level of your flock, the hundred people that attend your church service or the thousand people that sit in your church service, one of your roles as their shepherd is to guard them, to go to war for them, to protect them from deceitful things coming into their heart and their mind constantly, Okay. That's the second one. Third one is this. There's four. Third one is this. It's found in 1 Peter 5. Let me read 1 Peter 5, 1 through, uh, 1 through I'm going to keep reading until your eyes kind of glaze over. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, right? I exhort you to do this, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, being examples to the flock. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The third one is this, to humbly promote the welfare of the flock. The role of the shepherd is to humbly promote the welfare of the flock, okay? Here's what this means for you and for me, is that by God's kindness, he's given you a team of people to shepherd, and it means that their welfare is more important than your own. Like humbling yourselves for the sake of the sheep of God means their welfare is more important than your own. Their gain is more important than your own. A lot of times the role that you and I have been given in, in, in every single po- way possible, right? Because you have a microphone and a guitar and you are in a lot of ways in front of people, you get the most verbal uh, and nonverbal applause of probably anybody in the church, whether you realize it or not, okay? Some of you look at me like, no, actually people hate me. Okay, I'm telling you right now, because of the role that you have been given, there is a natural bent towards applauding the worship leader, right? applauding the guy who is up front. 
And to humbly promote the welfare of everybody else on your team that's actually serving and never getting that is to seek their welfare above your own. To constantly reflect, deflect praise and adoration, right, to two other people. First, to God, to say, don't worship me, don't praise me, worship God. And then also to say, don't applaud me, but look at these guys. Look at all these people on my team that have given and served and worked their tail off to pull this off. It means constantly deflecting praise, promoting their welfare humbly, constantly, over and over and over again. The shepherd, if you think about the shepherd, the imagery Jesus said, that seeks the welfare of the flock above their own. It doesn't dominate the sheep, as the scripture says. It doesn't oversee. It doesn't like have a thumb on it. It elevates the sheep. It doesn't promote self. It gives credit away constantly. It concerns itself. The shepherd concerns itself with the health and the goodness of the sheep. So your purpose, right, is to humbly promote the welfare of the sheep. Here's the fourth one, last one. 1 Peter 2.25. You were straying like sheep, but now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The fourth one is really simple, but it's the most easily overlooked. And it's this, the role of the shepherd is to always assume the position of under-shepherd. To always assume the position of under-shepherd. Okay? Anytime you and I ever even have like a twinge of thought that, that we are the fixer and the mender of people and we are the leader that is going to change their world. Any, any twinge of that sort of thinking is the complete anti-gospel and the complete opposite of everything that Jesus was about when he said, go feed my lambs. Okay? We are the under-shepherd of the good shepherd. So these four things, right? These are the four roles that are all throughout Scripture. You could find a ton of Scriptures that keep kind of accentuating all of these. In a perfect world, right, we get this and we're like, bam, got it. I know how to do this. I'm going to go for this. You know, I know that I'm supposed to be humble. I'm supposed to promote. I'm supposed to equip and train and all that kind of stuff. Here's what this breaks down for us, all right? Every single one of us are messed up dudes and women, right? We're messed up people that have sin. So sin comes into the picture, and distorts and destroys everything that seems to just make sense by Scripture, right? If we just read this and did it, our churches would be awesome, our people would be equipped and amazing, and we would be the most humble people on the planet, and, you know, we'd just be all happy and perfect. That's just not the way it works, though. There's sin in our life that constantly comes in. As I think about the role of shepherding at my church, um, it seems like over and over again there's really three temptations that are constantly coming coming at me and any guy that has the same sort of role as I do. Um, last summer, and, and really every year, I take guys that I'm discipling through a book called In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nouwen. It's an incredible book. It's about 100 pages. I mean, you could read it in like two hours, right? And um, Henry Nouwen wrote a book, this book about um, really like these temptations that every minister has that derails them from having their purpose fulfilled as a, as a shepherd that mimics character and heart of Jesus. So I want to just give these to you real briefly. I want you to think, we're going to think about it for a second, which temptations are more, um, you're more prone to. Here's the first one. Temptation to be relevant. Okay, as artists, as worship leaders, as writers, as um, guys who care about culture and art and love our people, there's this massive temptation that is going to come at you constantly to be relevant. Okay, um, we crave being relevant to the culture. 
Like nobody wants to be the old guy that you know says the wrong thing. Like doesn't know how to use the word Twitter in a conversation. Nobody wants to be the old guy that like wears the wrong shoes because you know they're like ten years old. Like no, nobody wants to be the guy where everybody's like somebody should tell him. You know, we crave being relevant to to our culture. But let me just define for you what our culture actually looks like. Like we're craving to be relevant to it, but I want to just kind of unpack what our culture actually is marked by. Okay, this is the culture of Austin. And this is probably the culture of your town, your city also, because this is the markings of like our current culture right now. This is what it's marked with. Our culture is filled with loneliness. Our culture is darkened by isolation. There's a lack of friendship and intimacy in our culture. There are broken relationships. There are marriages that are hanging by threads. There's boredom. There are feelings of emptiness and depression and self-reliance, the pursuit of approval and applause, idolatry in a deep sense, honestly, of losslessness. Like that is what marks our human culture right now in 2014. That defines Austin without Jesus right now. And uh, what I just want to like keep saying to my heart, preaching to my heart and saying to you too, is that the last thing your sheep need is somebody that is relevant to that culture. Like what they really need as a, as, a, as a sheep, as somebody that has a follower and a teacher and a pastor, they need you to be the, the stark polar opposite of the culture that they are drowning in. That's what they need from you. They need you to represent a kingdom culture that looks completely different than the culture they are immersed in. So the temptation to be relevant, we've got to kill it. Like we've got to crush it, okay? Because in, in, if we're really like honest with ourselves, it goes way beyond rhetoric or clothing or where we live or what we drive or what music we listen to. It's a deeply ingrained heart issue of wanting to connect with everybody else. And um, the thing that I have to keep preaching in my heart is that my church, my people, my team, my worship leaders, they need me to represent a different kingdom than the one everybody's living in in Austin, okay? So we've got to crush that temptation. We've got to starve it and kill it. Here's the second temptation. The temptation, and this, is, this nails me, okay? The temptation to be spectacular. Temptation to be spectacular. I mean, even as I'm uh, standing up here in front of you, like, there's, a, there's a temptation to want to just like really wow you with some mind-blowing stuff, you know? The, the temptation is real for me to just crave you to walk out of here and be like, that was the best thing at the whole conference. Like, I, I, I would have come just for that. Because I crave being spectacular. You crave being spectacular if you were totally honest with yourself. Whether it's a spectacular mother or a spectacular father or a spectacular musician or communicator or songwriter, we want to be spectacular. We crave applause and approval. And this plays out in how we leave how we lead as pastors. We want to wow people. We want to impress them. We want to be perfect and wise and spectacular, right? Um, I I remember being in college and being around uh, guys that I I thought were so old, you know, and they're like 35, and I'm 35 now, and so I'm like, dang it, now I'm old. But I remember looking at like 35-year-olds when I was in college and thinking like, man, they are so good at playing music, and they're such like a great leader, 
and I want to I want to be like them. They, they seem to have their crap together, like their kids are perfect, and they don't ever seem to struggle with money. And they they just God, I can't wait to be like that. And I was assuming that they were spectacular. And all of us know if you're in your mid thirties, like you never get to this place where you're like, finally, I've nailed it. I'm spectacular in all things. It just never ever happens. So if it never happens, it means we have to stop striving to be something that's never ever going to be happening. Never. You're never going to be spectacular. You're going to be excellent at things for sure, but the only person in your life that is supposed to be spectacular, right? Something that is made a spectacle of, put on a pedestal and a spotlight is showed on it. The only person in your life that is supposed to be spectacular is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So the temptation to be spectacular, we have to crush it because we are not meant to be spectacular. Jesus, the good shepherd, is the only one that deserves that role. So just to put it plainly, like your sheep don't need professional leaders, right? Who know them as employees, um, who, you know, call them to a super high standard and then fire them if they don't get there. They don't need a shepherd who is instilling in them to be spectacular and magnificent. What they really need are shepherds who know them and are known by them. They need shepherds that care for them and are cared by them. They need shepherds that are forgiving and confessing and are also um, hearing the confessions of their people and forgiving them constantly. They need to see you as a person that is vulnerable, not spectacular. Okay, That nails me. And that's why I have a few men in my life that know that that's my bent and um, are quick to, uh, to call me on them. That's why this guy's sitting on the front row. Because afterwards, he's going to be like, that kind of sucked, dude. Okay, and I need that. Um, third temptation. That's what you're writing in your notes. Tell Ivy this stunk. Okay, third temptation is this. The temptation to be powerful, okay? Temptation to be powerful. The church has a long, painful history, right, of um, men and women that have abused power and have chosen power and control over submission and grace and humility. We have a long history of that. I mean, it's been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries of people that choose power over being submissive and humble, right, and gentle and gracious. Um, You know, Jesus' view of shepherding was the opposite of power that we think of it in, you know. It was laying down power to take on suffering for his sheep. It was a different sort of leadership because it was a leadership based on humility. Humility that took on a cross, the most... um, the most disgusting form of crucifixion in the day. That's, that's the thing that he, he chose. So um, question for you is, uh, are you developing like healthy relationships with the people you're serving where you're constantly laying down power and taking on humility? Or are you opting for, for control? Are you opting to be a dictator that just is a, is a boss and a supervisor and has no relationship with the people you're serving? Henry Nouwen says this in, in this chapter about about this temptation. He says, powerlessness and humility in shepherding doesn't refer to people who have no spine and who let everybody else make decisions for them. It refers to people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they follow him wherever he leads. And these are the sorts of leaders that opt for humility rather than power, care rather than control, and that's the leader that's worth following. You know, think about in my life, the the men in my life that are my shepherds and my leaders, the ones that I would go anywhere and do anything for 
are the ones that don't exercise power over me, but they constantly lead me through humility and through grace and show me what Jesus looks like. Those are the men that I just, I naturally want to follow. All right, so this temptation to be powerful, it's a complete deceitful lie from the enemy. You're not meant to be powerful. Only God, God alone, has the power that, uh, that any of your sheep need to change or to grow or to be better musicians or whatever. Only he has that. You have the opportunity to be humble, right? To be gracious, to be known by them. Okay, those are the three temptations. And uh, as I'm talking about all three of those, I'm even thinking about, um, you know, how those are constantly playing out in different ways in my life. And maybe as you hear those three, there's like one or two that really pop out for you, you know, because all of us have different idolatry that we struggle with and we constantly have to knock over and light on fire and bury in the ground and walk away and then it comes back, you know, and we have to kill it over and over and over again. But I'd love for you just to think about like, man, what, what temptation am I most prone to? And how do I uproot that from my life? How do I starve that idol? Okay? Any questions so far about those temptations? All right. In the, the last couple of minutes that, that, that we have, I want to get real practical about, about how um, we are implementing these sort of kind of thoughts and things into the rhythm of leading our leaders, all right, to be in love with Jesus and to serve the church well. So here are 10 things that um, as I was kind of praying and thinking about you guys and what the Lord has taught me and what he continues to convict me of, these were like the most glaring sort of things, right, that have helped in shepherding a team of shepherds, leading a team of volunteers and leading a team of worship leaders, all right? First one is this, shepherding takes time. Shepherding demands time. You have to create regular time to engage and meet with the team that you're leading, okay? Like, there's no other option for doing it. Emails don't count. Texts don't count. Phone calls don't count. Face-to-face, human-to-human engagement in people's life is a massive, critical part of shepherding people well. You might have the greatest vision, right, in the world, but if your people don't know you, if your team doesn't actually believe in the shared vision, right, for where you're going, they don't know you. They're never around you. They're going to have a really hard time following you and trusting you. Okay, shepherding takes, it demands you putting time. We do time in three different ways, okay? As I'm thinking through the team of people that I'm leading, there are different levels of team that require different levels of commitment, okay? So I have people that I meet with weekly, people that I meet with monthly, and then people that I meet with yearly. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, every single week, the team of guys that are kind of the core group of guys, the team that I have to instill vision in constantly over and over and over again, right? I meet with them every single week without fail. Nothing comes in front of it. Wednesdays from 9 to 11 is our worship leader huddle, okay? Nothing comes in front of that. Weekly, instilling vision, talking about culture, loving on them, available, I'm there. They have 100% of my time. Monthly, we gather all of our volunteers, our people who are doing production, people who are on our story team and storytellers, anybody creating content for a Sunday gathering, students, kids, or adults, once a month we get together, okay? Um, We have about 350 
people that are in that team that are creating content for corporate worship every Sunday at all these campuses. So one time a month, all of these, this tribe gets together. And my role as shepherding them is I know I only have one, one time a month that I get to actually speak vision and culture and speak value into their life as one of their shepherds. And so that is an intentional time carved out where we're not like just playing games. We have a blast. We eat food from food trucks and, you know, we take communion together and we worship and we pray. But my motive, my aim in doing that is to know I'm entrusted with three hours once a month with this tribe of people that God has entrusted me to lead. So my intention in that is to constantly speak vision, culture, and the Word of God into them. Okay? So that's monthly. And then yearly. Yearly, I take our team of worship leaders and worship directors somewhere away, right? One time we, we borrowed a guy's cabin. Uh, another time we all packed up and drove to Marfa and stayed in teepees, right? Like it doesn't have to be anything like crazy. You don't have to fly somewhere or spend a lot of money. But once a year, when you remove them and you spend time, shepherding takes intentional time. It takes years and years of time, okay? That's the first one. Second one, know your vision and communicate it over and over and over and over and over and over again, okay? If you don't have a clear vision, your team's not going to know where to go. A clear, laid out, here's the vision for what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then say it over and over and over and over again. Our weekly meetings on Wednesday is pretty much the exact same thing said in a different way over and over and over again. If you looked at everything that I said every Wednesday, it's literally the same thing just presented in a different way because it takes a lot of time to communicate that, okay? Um, number three, teams are built upon foundations. What are your foundations? Teams are built on foundations. What are your foundations? We call them pillars, okay, at the Austin Stone. Um, I started to think, like, what are, what are the foundational things that are going to last beyond music style, beyond the culture of Austin? They're going to last beyond whether I'm here or somebody else is here. What are the pillars that our worship culture is built on. Our four pillars are the Word of God, excellence, togetherness, and engagement, right? Those are our pillars. What are your pillars? You gotta define that for your people. Like these are the things, the non-negotiables that our team is always gonna be built on. Those are our four. You need to have some foundation that everything that your team is doing is built on, okay? Fourth one, ask questions. The shepherd, man, the, the, the shepherd should be the the most vulnerable, the most um, question-asking person around. Like, I want to constantly ask my team and other guys that do what I do questions. Um, a couple times a year, I'll meet with a few guys on our team, and I'll ask a couple questions, and it's always like these three stated somehow. Kyle, how can I pastor you better? Kyle, how have I failed you recently? Kyle, what are you dreaming up? You know, I want them to have the opportunity to say, Aaron, you failed me because you weren't there when I really needed you to. And when you ask that question, like they're gonna tell you, right? And it's gonna hurt. And you need, you need to hear that. So just be prepared. When you ask a question, you're gonna get an answer. Um, but you need that, okay? So ask questions. Number five, artists thrive and flourish in community. Artists thrive and flourish in community. Okay, it's just a, it's just a cultural like thing. It's just, a, it's the way artists were wired. They're wired to be in community. They are bent towards isolation, right? But 
the knitting of their heart flourishes, their creativity flourishes when they're working in community. So if we know that as shepherds, it means fuel that. Like, as the shepherd, pour fuel on the thing that's going to make them flourish. Build community. Push it. Offer opportunities for community. Like, that should be one of your main priorities is to make community happen. Number six, create a culture of feedback. Not like audio feedback, but like (laughs) criticism. Um, Create that culture. It starts with you. Don't be afraid to get feedback about who you are, what you're doing, and how you're doing it, right? When you do that, you're freeing up all these other guys that you're leading. You're freeing them up to also receive feedback, okay? Create a culture of feedback. I know we're just cruising through these because you're smart people. You, you can figure out what to do with this. Number seven, create a culture of confessing and forgiving. Most of our times on Wednesday morning are me, like, confessing and saying, guys, I'm, I've been struggling to believe what the Word of God is saying. Let's pray together because if I'm struggling, I know you're struggling. And if you're struggling, we know our people at our church that are in the margins and not fully bought into the kingdom of God they're definitely struggling to believe the word of God. So culture of confessing. Number eight, work hard, play hard. We have a really good time on our team. Your team of people should enjoy being on your team. Like your team should be a really fun team. And that's on you to create that. It's on you to bring people that um, have enough creative energy and passion to make what you're doing fun. Think about the volunteers that are on your team. Most of their life, most of the rhythms of their life are without confession and forgiveness, without fun, right? Without a sense of fulfillment and enjoying the job that they're doing. All of us get to enjoy our job. And we have like conversations about God and the kingdom and all this kind of stuff all the time. Most of your volunteers don't get that, okay? Um, Because they're working jobs where a boss is not speaking value and making it fun. Do that. Work hard, but also play hard. Number nine, Money is not the only compensation for teams. Money is not the only compensation for teams. One of the biggest questions that we have asked of us is, man, that's great that you're at a big church and you can attract really good musicians because you're paying them, right? Um, that's one of the biggest things that we get is like, how do, how, do, how do we do that at a church of 50 people? That's a church plant that doesn't have the resources to pay musicians, Okay. We could camp on this for a whole real long time. First thing is, the Austin Center has not always been like that, right? So it didn't start out that way. Second of all, compensation does not always mean the money. You can compensate your volunteers with something that is much richer and much fuller and deeper than money could ever be, okay? And that is you pouring your life and family and house into them. That is way more valuable for your volunteers than money. Trust me, okay? Money brings a whole lot of other problems. It brings entitlement. It brings laziness. It brings like feeling like you're an employee so you just do the thing. It has its own issues, right? Money's not the only compensation, but you should be fueling them with something, okay? 10, last one, be a leader worth following. Be a leader worth following. There's millions of leaders in the world, um, truthfully. most of you guys in the room could stand up here and do the same thing that I'm doing. There's a thousand other guys that could come and say these sort of things. Um, but what kind of sets you apart when you're leading your team is being a leader that's actually worth following. Like it's worth listening to you. 
It's worth like believing your vision. It's worth like hearing the word of God from you because you're passionate about it and it's, it's deeply rooted in you. I want to be a leader that's like actually worth following because they see the good shepherd in me constantly. You know, um, this is a kind of a bold, daring statement, but I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying this. Like if you look at your team of, of volunteers or staff people, right? If you look at them and they are super prideful, right? There's a really good chance that that hinges on you being super prideful. Like if you look at your team and they're full of humility and full of grace and hospitality, there's a really good chance that that hinges on you creating that sort of culture, okay? Everything hinges on leadership, especially in our, in a context of like what we do week in and week out. So if you're looking at your team and you're seeing like some major consistent issues of arrogance or laziness or being disengaged or apathetic, it starts with you. Like you have to be a leader that's worth them following and altering their view of the church, right? Changing their perception of worship. Maybe your, your team kind of thinks that, that worship is not something you need to be expressive in. Well, then that's, that's, that's on you. Like, that's on you to change that culture, to change that, that perception. Um, that is really convicting to me because if I look at my team, there's a lot of things I look at that I don't really like yet. There's things in there that I know are going to be 10 years before we get to a place of better health. And um, because it's the role I've been given, that starts with me being the shepherd. And I own that and realize that, and I take that very, very, very seriously, okay? And you should too. That's, that's your role. Last thing I want to show you, um, and then uh, we'll have some time for questions, if you guys have any. I'm going to show you a document that we, uh, that we give out to our worship leaders and all of our teams. So this is for anybody that is discipling or leading a group of people. All right? We have a culture uh, in our team where every person on the team, no matter where they're at okay, in that organizational chart, has the responsibility to also be discipling somebody else. Right? So I have eight worship leaders that I'm pastoring, but those eight worship leaders also have five or six guys that they are pastoring and discipling. Okay, because we want people to constantly be replicating themselves into other people. Now, where that's really hard is um, you and I have very limited time, right? Most of us in the room have families. We've got, like, soccer practice, and we've got um, other pastoral duties that we've got to do. You don't get to just sit in a room and play guitar and write songs all day long. We have some of your elders at your church. You have several other responsibilities. So it's really hard to figure out how to pour our lives into people because we have such small amounts of time. This is what we use just as a tool. I don't know what I'm aiming at. Speaking of tool. Um, this is what we use. I think it's coming. Um, it's called a shepherding sphere. Okay, And this is just really a, a very simple way of figuring out where to put all of the people that you've been entrusted to lead, where to actually put them into your schedule and your routine. If you don't become the master of your schedule, somebody else will, okay? And it will probably end up not looking like you really want it to look like, right? So you, you got to be like the master of your schedule. So this is really hard for me, and I have somebody that helps me with schedule because I'm so bad at it. Like, I realize that I'm, like, it's probably one of the worst things in my life that, that I do, okay, is scheduling stuff. Um, 
So this is over the last couple of years. This is what we've kind of moved to in our team of helping us kind of organize when and how much time to give people, all right? The amount of time that I give Kyle, right, who's a guy that it's my role to pastor him. He's my best friend, but it's still my role. The amount of time that I give Kyle is completely different than the guy who is my intern, right? And that amount of time is completely different than uh, the guy who is volunteer leading um, kids ministry at North Campus. It's just different, right? It doesn't mean they're any more or less valuable. It means different levels of time are required, okay? So just real simple. We start here. This is hourly. This is what we should hourly, we should hourly be attentive to this sphere right here. And there's only one person that goes in this sphere, and this is you, okay? As a shepherd of people, you will absolutely fail if you are not first nurturing the wellness of your own soul, okay? You will fail at leading people. You will fail morally, spiritually. You will fail in every possible way if your soul is not healthy, if your love for Jesus is not rich, if your love for the Word of God right, is not fervent, there is no way that you're going to ever be able to lead more people to have a fervor for God if you don't have it. right? So this is hourly. This is the wellness of my soul. And the only person that gets this time is me. Okay? Now, does that mean like every hour I'm sitting down to read Scripture or whatever? No, but it means constantly I should be attentive to, okay, am I in love with the Lord? Am I speaking the Word of God? this group of people right now. Right now, am I caring about your approval of me or am I caring about God's approval of me as a son? Okay, every hour. And next, it extends to daily, all right? And this is a sphere of nurturing. The only people that get a daily kind of shepherding time from you should be your family, all right? An intern should not get a nurturing, shepherd-sorting attention from your heart in the same way that your family should. Like, it's you and then it's serving your family every single day. You are the pastor. You are the shepherd. You are the nurturer of your family. So the people that are in this list right here for me, my wife, Jamie, my three sons, Caden, Amos, and Deacon, and my daughter, Story, right? Nobody else gets that level of attention than them. Kyle does not get the same attention as Caden, right? He just doesn't because this is my family. Daily, I'm their shepherd. Okay, that moves here to shepherding. This is weekly, all right? And this can be kind of plotted out into like maybe a team that you have or a campus that you're responsible for. This is like kind of a core group of men or women that you are um, pastoring and shepherding. For me, okay, this is our eight worship leaders on staff. We have four worship directors that are kind of in charge of resources and um, production and that sort of thing, and then one resident that I have, okay, which is kind of a higher level of an intern, and then my band guys, okay? So this is about 15 people that every single week I'm thinking, okay, I need to make time to pour my life and soul into their life and soul. So they get a spot every single week where I'm thinking just about shepherding them. We have weekly band rehearsal, that's where I shepherd those guys. We have the weekly staff meeting, which is where I shepherd the worship leaders. And then I have a weekly um, two-hour time with my resident where nobody else gets that time, just him, pour my life into him, okay? This moves to a bigger sphere, which is all of these kind of increase in number of people too, right? So this is casting vision. This is a monthly 
kind of intentional time of shepherding a different group of people, this is the, the volunteers that serve at our church every single week. Okay, That's the meeting that I told you about once a month. It's called the Worship Collective. We eat food, we pray, we worship, and I teach the word and vision and culture. Once a month, intentional time to shepherd them to love and to serve the church body. All right? And then the last one is uh, there's no really time frame on the last one. It's just kind of always, and it's gospel saver. These are the people, and I have actual names of, of dudes in my life that either don't know the Lord yet or are kind of in the margins or the fringes. Maybe they've been burnt by church or they're not fully kind of bought in yet. These are people that uh, I'm constantly thinking I want to be like savor to them. I, I want to be around them, and even though I'm not shepherding them, or discipling them. I'm not going to like go through a Bible study with them. But when I'm around them, I want them to have a sense of the gospel through speech, through action, through love, through kindness, all that kind of stuff. Gospel saver. This is in the city, right? And this happens just all the time. These are baristas at coffee shops. These are artists in Austin that I've become really good friends with. Gospel saver, okay? This is why it's important. I know you're looking at you're like, well, that's really simple. Great idea. Okay, the why this is helpful is because it helps you look and see like, okay, this guy up here in Gospel Saver, I'm trying to meet with him like three times a week and it's more important for his level of discipleship, right? Or growth or shepherding. It is more important for this guy that I actually had in the wrong box. I need to spend more time with him. Like he needs to be in this shepherding weekly sort of role. Like I need to disciple him. I don't need to just cast like vision or be gospel saver in his life. I need to disciple him on a weekly, intentional sort of basis. It's also really helpful because we show each other all of our, our sheets, and you'll start to see like, oh, you know what, Johnny, Johnny's actually on five people's spheres. So Johnny's like double dipping in accountability, and Johnny's getting like a bunch of people pouring into him, and he's confessing to everybody, and nobody's really making any progress with shepherding because Johnny's just like getting a bunch of free coffee all the time, right? So it helps us. <laughs> It helps us to go like, you know what, this is a guy that I've been spending too much really valuable time with because Kyle is actually spending time with him too. So Kyle, you take the role of shepherding him. He is on your list right now of a person that you're going to intentionally pour your life into. Um, It just helps with some framework of how to schedule um, this mass group of people that God has entrusted you to shepherd and to lead, all right? So if on your kind of spheres, man, you've got like four people, right, that are spread out through all four of those. Maybe you're not married um, and you're at a church plant. Listen, it's not about the number of people. It's about the level of commitment, right, and the intentionality that you are pouring into them. That's what it's about. It's like that's going to translate in any sort of context, whether it's a thousand people or four people, okay? This has been really helpful for us. I can, uh, I can make this available for you guys. It's a, a PDF. Um, I can make that available for you if that, if that seems to help. But I'd love to know if there's any kind of questions or anything that you guys want to unpack or talk about. We've got a few minutes left. Yeah. Yeah. How did you transition those roles and step out of those bands? Or, I don't know. 
Yeah, that's a great question, man. Uh, like I said, when, when we first got to our church, uh, it was me and another guy, and we just kind of rotated uh, on Sunday. So he had his own band, and I had my own band. And, um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to this. Like, there's going to be people that move, you know? So hopefully, my aim is these gospel saver guys that are just baristas at a coffee shop that I just love, right? Is that hopefully one day they're going to move into a different sphere where I get to disciple them to be a lover of Jesus, right? And um, in all of these spheres, the way it kind of started out for us was we just like see a couple guys that as we poured more time and energy into them, their um, leadership just kind of just kept flourishing and growing. You know, you, you see guys like that right now. You can look at men and women in your team, no matter how big it is, we're like, I think there's something there, you know? I think there's some leadership that could really blossom in that person. I would put them in a sphere where you were spending a lot of real intentional time developing them and then give leadership away, you know? Build that guy up or that girl up to, to lead worship. And then even though it might not be like to the bar that you're expecting as an excellent leader, give it away. Give credit away. Give opportunity away. That's the way you replicate, you know, is not to wait for somebody to be another you, but to find somebody that was a you like 10 years ago and help them grow over time. You know, that's kind of how we got to where we're at. And that's still the mode we're in of identifying people that need to be poured into, stretching their leadership, not being afraid to let them fail, you know, um, because they're going to. That's how I learned. That's still how I learn every day. It's by just failing massively. Right, Kyle? Yeah, okay, one, maybe one more, because I, I want to be a good steward, and I don't know what you guys have next, so um, we can hang afterwards, too. So, you had a question. I was going to ask on the other side, um, I really have a lot of talented people, a lot of talented singers and a bunch of players and such. Do you make try to make room for as many of them as you can? And if uh, do you put them in other places or just have to tell them no? Yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, that's the hardest that, that's honestly one of the hardest things. I feel like I've said that like 10 times. One of the hardest things. Um, because, you know, at, in any church, you have people that come up and they want to be involved, but there's always a, a certain amount of places for people to actually be used. You can't have seven guitar players in a band. It'd be a mess. So this is what, this is what we've kind of um, moved towards that I think is, is healthy, you know, is we downplay being a part of Sunday. Uh, we don't make Sunday the... The, the main show or the, the big event, you know. But in casting vision every month to these 300 or so volunteers, we're constantly downplaying Sunday and upplaying just the role of serving and the role of ministry, you know. So when somebody comes and they're like, hey, man, I really feel like God's telling me to play guitar on a Sunday uh, at the Austin Stone, um, the first thing we do is say, well, man, there's, you know, there's a lot of people that are, that are um, playing and serving and leading here's the places that we really need leadership right now, and they're just as important as Sunday. You know, our kids' ministry needs a guitar player at the 9 o'clock service, South Campus, man. If you, if you want to get involved with that, here's how you get started. And then there's a process for getting started, you know, which starts with coming to one of those monthly meetings, getting involved in relationships and people's lives. You know, so it's, it's that sort of, like, progress that, would ever move someone into a role of being on a stage. But we, we try to downplay Sunday and give people other opportunities to lead worship and to play their, their instrument or to run pro presenter. You know, whatever their skill set is, um, the, the first initial reaction is like, I have this gift, so I should use it on Sunday. And we try to downplay that. Yeah. Okay.
It's 3 o'clock. So I'd love to just pray for you guys and then send you out. And if you have any other questions, um, Kyle and I are, are totally available. And Kyle's even smarter than the smartest person I know. Just gave credit away. All right, let me pray. God, thank you for, uh, for these men and women in this room. Thank you um, for pursuing them, for being their good shepherd. Jesus, thank you for going after them, um, for humbling yourself, for taking on the cross, for being powerful and spectacular. Jesus, thank you for that. I pray that you would kill in us the temptation to want to steal what you already are. Um, I pray that you would continue just to uh, instill wisdom and discernment as, as we lead um, these men and women in our church that, God, you love way more than we could love. So give us a, a maturity and discernment in, in how to lead them well. We love you. Thankful for you. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.